You are listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Phil Fernbach. This podcast is supported by the Jan Molshavsky Foundation. Three soldiers sat in a bunker surrounded by three-foot-thick concrete walls chatting about home. The conversation slowed and then stopped. The cement walls shook and the ground wobbled like jello. 30,000 feet above them, in a B-36, crew members coughed and sputtered as heat and smoke filled their cabin, and dozens of lights and alarms blared. Meanwhile, 80 miles due east, the crew of a Japanese fishing trawler, the not-so-lucky Lucky Dragon Number 5, stood on deck, staring with terror and wonder at the horizon. The date was March 1st, 1954, and they were all in a remote part of the Pacific Ocean witnessing the largest explosion in the history of humankind. The detonation of a thermonuclear fusion bomb nicknamed Shrimp, codenamed Castle Bravo. But something was terribly wrong. Each of us is error-prone, sometimes irrational and often ignorant. It is incredible that humans are capable of building thermonuclear bombs. It is equally incredible that humans do in fact build thermonuclear bombs and blow them up even when they don't fully understand how they work. It is incredible that we have developed governance systems and economies that provide the comforts of modern life. I'm going to elaborate sort of the two main themes of our book. The name of the book is The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. And the two major themes in the book are encapsulated in both the title and the subtitle of the book. And the title, The Knowledge Illusion, reflects this very pervasive and profound phenomenon, which is that we tend to overestimate our understanding of the world. And the second part of it has to do with the communal nature of knowledge, why we never think alone. And we believe that those two ideas are closely interrelated. Human beings are not built for individual cognition. We're not built to master every detail about the world. Our minds are not made for storing a lot of details about the way that the world works because the world is just too complex for any one individual to master too much about it. Instead, what human beings are really designed for is collaborative cognition. We distribute knowledge across our communities and we take, and and we have sort of a division of cognitive labor where some people master certain pieces and other people master others. And then we have, we developed cognitive capacities for jointly pursuing complex goals together by sharing knowledge. So. I do work in a business school, so I do spend quite a bit of time thinking about business topics and stuff like that. And in fact, the way that our book is set up is Steve and I are both cognitive scientists. So we get really deep into cognition, how the mind works, what thinking is for, and all this kind of really deep topics about the mind in the first half of the book. And then we talk about various different applications in the second half of the book. There certainly are implications for decision-making in business and economics and so on. However, some of my favorite and some that I find the most interesting have to do with political discourse and discourse around controversial scientific issues, the kinds of things that we argue about as a society like vaccination or climate change and these kinds of things. Because in those areas, we have these really intractable, challenging debates as a society that have immense implications for societal well-being. And they're often very complicated. They're very complicated. People don't understand them well. And yet we have this passionate, often destructive kind of discourse where it's very hard to have any kind of meaningful conversation across the aisle. I think that our work has a lot of implications for those kinds of things. And that's where kind of my passion really lies with this work in terms of this stuff. That being said, I mean, I see this kind of stuff all the time 
in other areas as well. And so entrepreneurs are famously overconfident. And if you look at startups, almost all of them fail. And they fail because it's really hard to start a new business and develop a new idea. And it's an extreme challenge. There's any idea that you come up with, there's a good chance that other people are working on it. There's, you know, you have to make the finances work. You have to deal with interpersonal challenges. I mean, starting a business is really hard. They mostly fail. Any successful entrepreneur, in the back of their head, they know that. And yet, when they pursue it, they sort of have to feel like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be the one who makes it. And if we didn't have that, if you didn't have some level of overconfidence, if you thought about everything that could go wrong, and you weren't just sort of laser focused on what's going to go right, you might never try. We need the innovators out there who are willing to try and fail. And so there are upsides to this kind of overconfidence. Maybe not necessarily to every individual because it can lead to really bad outcomes for individuals sometimes. But as a society, having a vibrant entrepreneurial society is really important. And that sort of relies on people being overconfident a lot of the time. So we do get into this in the book, this sort of double-edged sword of overconfidence, which is that it certainly can lead to trouble, but it can also be very important sometimes. I was for a time on an advisory board for McKinsey, but I'm not anymore. But basically, one of the things they're very interested in is what they call change management, which is helping organizations to improve their culture, to reorganize in a way that makes the company more productive. And they became very interested in behavioral science. So I was participating with McKinsey in terms of going there and talking around things like nudges and choice architecture, which I just mentioned. So yeah, I don't work you know, for them. It's more of an advisory kind of sharing academic information. So as a kid, I was very interested in science and I had two areas of science that I was very passionate about because I thought that they were the most mysterious. So I was interested in physics. I got interested in, in particle physics, astrophysics. I remember reading Stephen Hawking's books when I was a kid and I just thought it was so amazing. I just had this deep kind of abiding curiosity about what the universe is all about and so on. And the other one is the mind, because the brain is the most complex object in the known universe. And we're making progress in the world of cognitive science, but we still don't really understand how the mind processes information, where consciousness comes from, all these deep issues. Like we know that the mind is a kind of computer now, which is an advance over what we knew a hundred years ago, but we still don't know in a deep way, really what's going on. You know, so like, it, it's a very mysterious thing. And when I was in college, I actually studied philosophy and I actually thought about being a doctor for a little while with pre-med and so on. I studied a lot of science and I was always good at math, but I felt like I was kind of better at conceptual thinking than I was in math. And I felt like to do physics at the highest of high levels, I always thought like your math has to be off the charts. And I was good at, you know, but I wasn't off the charts at math, like some of my friends. So I ended up deciding to, well, I left and did business for a while, but I, I wanted to come back and go to graduate school to study cognitive science because that connected with my interest in science, but also philosophy and so on. So that's what drew me to it. Okay. So you, you know, so like I'm a bluegrass musician, so I'm constantly learning tunes and someone will mention a tune that I learned 10 years ago. And I'll say, oh my God, I don't remember that tune at all. However, if we start playing within a few minutes, I'll sort of find it again. I'm not relearning it completely. So there's some kind of structure deep somewhere 
that's allowed me to recreate that. So I don't retain all the details. And that's the nature also of like your students who are listening. If they learn some concept in their economics class freshman year and they're juniors or seniors or whatever, they would not necessarily remember all the details of that. But if I started talking about it, they'd be able to learn it much quicker than they could the first time. So we definitely learn things that are, if they're taught in the right way, I think. If they're taught in the wrong way, we might not retain anything at all. If they're taught in a way that's sort of disembodied or just facts or unconnected definitions and those kinds of things, those might just be completely gone. I'm just very hopeful and optimistic about the future. And I know people are scared of like super intelligence taking over and everything. I mean, I just don't think that we're close to anything like that yet. It's not impossible. And it's something that I think we should take very seriously. But I really see AI as being this incredibly powerful, wonderful thing that is going to unlock incredible, huge amounts of economic value. And like I said, I'm maybe an optimist bordering on idealistic, but I kind of believe in this idea of abundance. And the idea of abundance is we sort of have this zero sum perspective about economic activity where if some people have a lot of wealth, like other people can't. So what does it mean to be smart? Like a lot of the times on an intelligence test, it's like how much I remember, how fast can I process information? Can I solve tricky word problems or anagrams? Can I solve math problems? All that kind of stuff. If you think about what that's all about, it's about this individual mental horsepower. And there's a lot of ways that people can contribute. What human beings really excel at, as I said, is group pursuit of complex goals. How do you define success? It's not like, can I individually process a lot of information? What it really is, can I participate in a group and add and help the group achieve something great? And uh, there's a lot of different ways to do that. And so there is this very interesting work, which has tried to define. So in the traditional literature on intelligence, there's this very big literature in psychology. They call this idea of general intelligence, G for short. And there's this new idea of, it's not about G, but it's about your ability to help a group succeed. So if you take people and put them on different teams, to what extent does their contribution help the team actually achieve an objective? You know, so sometimes I have friends who say, oh, I have a terrible memory. I'm so embarrassed. I don't think I'm that smart. I don't remember this fact or that fact. I'm like, go look it up. Who cares? And your mind's not really built for storing all that kind of stuff. Try to figure out what it is that you really excel at and what you're good at and use that to your advantage to try to really help whatever group or organization you're involved with do better. It's okay that you're not a master of everything. In fact, that's what teams are supposed to be. Teams are supposed to be groups of individuals that have complementary skills, not groups where everybody does everything. Now, what I will tell your students who are maybe younger is, okay, don't take it too far because I want you to try new things and I want you to be fearless and I want you to fail, you know? So I, I want you to try to be calibrated sometimes and don't be a jerk, be nice and be open-minded and listen to other people, but go after what you want to go after and don't let people tell you that you can't do it. Be overconfident in those cases because by trying and failing and learning from that, you're going to end up stronger than you were before. So take these lessons to heart, but don't, don't take it too far. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.